Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. So please join me in welcoming back Professor Robert Riley. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Deacon. It's a delight to be back here, both at this parish and, of course, with the great ICC. Uh, I was privileged to be at the fifth anniversary garden party last Sunday, at least the last part of it, and it's a tribute to this great organization. Hard to believe five years when you've got the best mailing list in the D.C. area, and it's always a sense of homecoming to be with you quite frankly. I was so excited to do this that I forgot the notes for my talk back in my home in Vienna. So we'll have to improvise a little tonight. I also want you to know that Father Hathaway, the pastor here, is an old friend of mine who once again displays the good sense to not be here when I'm speaking. <laughs> I was with Father Hathaway some years ago at a wedding reception and we were in a hotel elevator with a group of Japanese tourists who were speaking in their own language. So Father Hathaway began speaking in French. And uh, when we came out of the elevator, I said, why were you doing that? He said, well, I had to do something. <laughs> something international. And that was, speaking French was the, the one thing he could think of doing. <laughs> now, pop quiz. How many of you think that Christians, Jews, and Muslims are praying to the same God? Oh, many of you think we're praying to the same God. So the God the Muslims are praying to is the same God we're praying to. You think so? No. Um, how about the God of Israel, Yahweh, and the God we pray to? Is that the same God? Ah, oh, close to unanimity on, on that one. Just curious, uh, how... How many of you here might have Jewish friends? Very many of you. How many of you have uh, Muslim friends? Really? That's very impressive. Um, maybe I won't have to talk for so long since I've forgotten <laughs> my notes and you are all well, so well prepared in your acquaintances. I've had the privilege of working with Muslims uh, for quite some years, and I'm happy tonight that Anna is here and Johannes from the Westminster Institute. Uh, 
where we continue to do this kind of work. And in fact, in December at the Press Club in Washington, there will be a conference by the Westminster Institute on amplifying Muslim voices for reform and reason. And those are the, the Muslims we work with and for. As a matter of fact, uh, my book, the yes, this is an ad, The Closing of the Muslim Mind, How Intellectual Suicide Created the Modern Islamist Crisis, is inscribed to, quote, the courageous men and women throughout the Islamic world, here nameless for reasons of their own security, who are struggling for a reopening of the Muslim mind, unquote. Those are the people who will be here, the Muslims for this conference in December, at which will be presented a huge work uh, of chapters of their thoughts on how to reopen the Muslim mind. In fact, many of those are on a website called Al-Musli, the reformer. It's both in English and in Arabic. Al-Musli, A-L-M-U-S-L-I-H dot com or dot org, one of the two, where you can see and experience the thoughts of those who wish to open the Muslim mind again. Now, also, I do have a cheat sheet here that I may revert to that is called The Prospects and Perils of Catholic-Muslim Dialogue. And this monograph was co-published with the Westminster Institute. Uh, and it goes over both the sort of the theological and philosophical histories that we need to know about Islam and Christianity to deal with the issue. And the last part of it goes in with some detail into actual Muslim-Christian dialogues that have been taking place in this country for some years through the regional bishops' conferences. Uh, Johannes and Anya have those for sale over there if anybody is interested during the, the intermission or afterwards. Now, I think this is relevant because uh, let me read to you one conclusion from a product of this, uh, the Bishop's Conference's Catholic-Muslim Dialogue. Here's the conclusion of a publication that is called, from the USCC, Revelation, Catholic and Muslim Perspectives. Here it is. Muslims and Catholics can develop a just and peaceful society in the spirit of the teachings of the Gospel and the Quran. Together. Both Jesus and Muhammad loved and cared for all whom they met, especially the poor and the oppressed. Did I hear a couple hmms out there? <laughs> So Jesus and Muhammad are offered together here as examples of loving everyone whom they met. More recently, at a press conference in September, Cardinal McCarrick, here in Washington, D.C., appeared with some Muslims and made the following statement. He began, quote, in the name of God, the merciful and the compassionate. 
Are you are you familiar with that in the name of God the merciful? God? That would be like a Muslim imam beginning by saying, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which an imam has never done. But Cardinal McCarrick has here done the equivalent, beginning in the name of God, the merciful, and the compassionate. Well, the merciful and compassionate, of course, is, is that's throughout the Quran. It begins almost every surah. It's in there for more than 100 times. Then the, his eminence says, quote, Catholic social teaching is based on the dignity of the human person. And as you study the Holy Quran, as you study Islam, basically this is what Muhammad the prophet, peace be upon him, has been teaching, unquote. You know the Islamic formula, peace be a han, be a han, peace be, I see I can't even get it out of my throat. <laughs> peace be upon him, is obligatory for a Muslim to mention every time they mention Muhammad's name. Um, Catholic social teaching is based on the dignity of the human person. And as you study the Holy Quran, as you study Islam, basically, this is what Muhammad the prophet, peace be upon him, has been teaching, the dignity of the human person. So I think the subject we're addressing tonight is contemporary, vitally important, because it is affecting perceptions in a very profound way. Now, alcohol is forbidden in Islam. I don't care what Cardinal McCarrick says, but it's not <laughs> forbidden in Christianity. <laughs> now, <clears throat> Abraham's in the title of the talk, isn't it? Yes. Are we all religions the same religion of Abraham? So what we need to do tonight is to take a little look at Abraham as he is considered by these three religions, which are, of course, all three monotheistic. I would suggest... Um, Another thing, if I could find even the notes I didn't forget. Uh, these, three these three religions are alike in a very profound way. Of course, all three believe there's one God. They believe that this God is just and merciful. Most importantly, they believe he is transcendent. He is above and beyond the created universe. He is eternal and timeless. He is omnipotent. He's omniscient. The world here isn't divine. He is. He transcends the world. He has also, however, made himself known through his revelation. So far, all three are on board here. Within that revelation, he has told man what he expects in terms of his behavior. All of them have commands or commandments. If you do them, 
you may expect God's favor. If you don't, you will have his disapproval. The end result of which is when you die and appear before his throne, you will either go to paradise or heaven for obeying God, or you will be sent to Gehenna or hell for not. That's a lot right there, those things to have in common, because we could talk about many religions that don't have that in common. For instance, the polytheistic religions, the immanent religions, the ones that consider the world itself as divine, and there is nothing outside this universe. This, of course, was the pre-Judaic and the pre-Christian view of reality that obtained in the ancient world, the ancient Greek classical world, in the Roman Empire, in the Middle East, etc. So those things are all on board in, in that larger perspective. Now, Abraham, so we have three revelations, Jewish, Christian, Muslim. Abraham is mentioned, I can't say in all three of them, because obviously we accept the Old Testament, and that's where he appears. So in those two of them. And what is Abraham uh, thought to have been doing? Well, in Genesis, uh, Abraham is described as having a covenant with God and forming basically the, the Israeli, the, the, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Abraham in the Quran plays a somewhat similar role and the covenant is also mentioned. Now let's all pick up our Qurans and go to Surah 5, verse 20. Oh no, wait, Deacon Sabatino said bring the Bible, not the Quran. I forgot. Actually, just kidding. But in Genesis, uh, chapter 12, 1 to 3, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from the land Go forth from the land of your kinfolk and from your father's house to a land I will show you. The promised land, right? I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I curse those who curse you. And all the communities of the earth shall find blessing in you. All the communities of the earth shall find blessing in Abraham. Abraham wonders how this is going to happen because Sarah is barren. Uh, she's supposed to be around 90. I guess he's 100. So he asks God, how, how can this happen? Uh, just take care of my son Ishmael, whom he had by his concubine Hagar, right? So he's got, Hag he's got Ishmael there, but uh, God speaks to him again. So how is this going to happen? God took him outside 
and said, look up at the sky and count the stars if you can. Just so, he added, shall your descendants be. Abram put his faith in the Lord who credited it to him as an act of righteousness. Thus we have Isaac. Now what happens to Ishmael? Who knows Genesis well enough to remember? Go for it. Uh, Sarah, Sarah got uh, very jealous the fact that there was another child and uh, um, Isaiah wasn't the only one and she banished Hagar and her child. Right. Everybody hear that? Sarah is upset and uh, Abraham orders Hagar out of the house and to take Ishmael with him. And here is how that is recounted in Genesis 21:18. Early the next morning, Abraham got some bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. Then placing the child on her back, he sent her away. As she roamed aimlessly in the wilderness of Beersheba, the water in the skin was used up. So she put the child down under a shrub and then went and sat down opposite him about a bow shot away. For she said to herself, let me not watch to see the child die. As she sat opposite him, he began to cry. God heard the boy's cry and God's messenger called to Hagar from heaven. What is the matter, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy's cry in this plight of his. Arise, lift up the boy and hold him by the hand, for I will make of him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with the water and then she gave the boy to drink. Now, why is that particularly interesting? Do you know what the first name for the Muslims was? What Christians called the Muslims? Ishmaelites and sometimes Hagarites from the mother. Hagarites and Ishmaelites. And do you know what is going on in Mecca as we speak today? It's the Hajj. And do you know one of the ceremonies of the Hajj? The well that Genesis speaks of, the Muslims believe, is there. And there are two hills on either side of it. And they run between these two hills, as Hagar is said to have done, looking for the water. That's how close the Muslims are to this part of this story of Abraham, that they reenact the search for the water. Also, interestingly enough, well, let's, let's go back because this is even to the day pertinent. Abraham takes Isaac up for, with himself bound and with wood to burn. And Isaac finally gets the idea that there's going to be some kind of sacrifice. 
So he looks around and he asks Abraham, where is the lamb? Abraham gets ready to strike his own son and God sends an angel to stop him. This, of course, is a great scene in all three religions. In Judaism, for the mercy of God in stopping Abraham, God who recognizes the faith of Abraham, it's a great scene for Christians because we believe it prefigures the sacrifice of Christ. Archbishop Fulton Sheen gave a great talk one time when he mentions this scene and the question of Isaac, where is the lamb? And he said, in this question echoed down the centuries, where is the lamb? And then one day across the River Jordan, John the Baptist looked and exclaimed, look, the lamb of God. And the father did not withhold his arm this time. Now, for the Muslims, this event is one of the greatest religious festivals in their religion, and it's being, it's being celebrated today. I can't tell you how many scores of thousands of lambs will be slaughtered uh, today. It's actually a three-day festival in which they are commemorating. Uh, it's the Feast of Sacrifice, and they're commemorating this episode from Genesis, which is prominent in the Quran as well. Because obviously, if you remember, Abraham then does find an animal to, to slaughter after his son is saved. Let's see what exactly the Quran does say about Abraham and about Ishmael. This is from the second surah. And when Abraham was tried by his Lord with words, and he fulfilled them, Allah said, indeed, I will make you a leader of the people. Abraham said, and my descendants? Allah said, my covenant does not include the wrongdoers. And mention when we made the house a place of return for the people, a place of security. And take from the standing place of Abraham a place of prayer. And we charged Abraham and Ishmael, saying, purify my house for those who perform tawaf and those who are staying there for worship, and those who bow and prostrate in prayer. Do you know what he's talking about? The Kaaba. This is, the, this is what uh, this passage refers to. The Muslims think the Kaaba was built by Abraham and Ishmael. More than that, they think it was originally built by Adam, was destroyed in the flood, and Abraham and Ishmael rebuilt it. And that 
they believe the Hajj, the pilgrimage, takes its origin from that and dates back to that. Elsewhere where these two are mentioned, or were you witnesses when death approached Jacob, when he said to his sons, what will you worship after me? They said, we will worship your God and the God of your fathers, Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac, one God, and we are Muslims in submission to him. Okay, well, who was the God of Abraham? Fast forward to Surah 3. Quote, Abraham was neither a Jew nor a Christian, but he was one inclining toward truth, a Muslim submitting to Allah, and he was not of the polytheists, unquote. So there we have it. Abraham was a Muslim. You're chuckling. That's, uh, not only was Abraham a Muslim, Adam was a Muslim. Moses was a Muslim. Christ was a Muslim. See, someone just reverted to Islam. They said, we're all Muslims. <laughs> and that is because the teaching within Islam is that Islam is the deen al-fitra, the, the, the religion natural to, to man. So we are all born Muslims and were apostatized most likely by our parents. I said that to a cardinal once. I said, your eminence, you were born a Muslim and your mother apostatized you. He, 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 he gave me a very hard look. <laughs> but that indeed is, is the teaching of Islam. One thing you can see through what we've been doing here is how steeped in Judaism Islam is. Muhammad was completely convinced that he was a Jew, well, he wasn't Jewish, of course, but from the side of Ishmael, that he was one of the great prophets of this religion. And the direction of prayer in Islam was originally oriented toward Jerusalem, not toward Mecca. And he was in a state of shock that the Jewish tribes in uh, the Arabian Peninsula would not join him. And he signified his displeasure at their not doing that by decapitating 700 of them in one day, which might not have been the way Christ handled that situation in <laughs> terms of love for the other in which uh, the dialogue uh, statement indicated. Now, let's go back to how the Jewish uh, people understand themselves so we can quickly get to some of the central points. Here's a wonderful statement. I, you, you may have heard on the recommended list that I recommend to you the works of Remy Brague, who's a great French uh, philosopher and teacher. This is from a statement of his that I love. Speaking of these being the religions of the book, you know, we're all part of the religions of the book. He says, the religion of Israel is a history that led to a book. Christianity is a history recounted in a book, and Islam is a book that led to a history. 
Isn't that kind of neat? I'll repeat it then. The religion of Israel is a history that led to a book. Christianity is a history recounted in a book, and Islam is a book that led to a history. Uh, the first thing the Jews had was a history, a self-conscious history beginning with Abraham, and the book followed from that. The book didn't constitute them a people. It recounted the history of their becoming a people. In that revelation, being told by God, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the deal. We'll have this covenant. At the beginning, the Jews thought of their God just the way the neighboring tribes thought of theirs as a tribal God. And the tribal god's job was to make sure the rain fell and the crops grew. And most importantly, that when the enemy tribe attacked you, that your god would defeat their god and you would have victory. So at the beginning it seemed the Jews thought, well, we have our god just like they have theirs. There was a difference, however, in that they did understand their god was transcendent. And the gods of the other tribes were imminent. They were part of this pantheistic world. This is the most single striking thing about the Jewish people, that they understood God as transcendent. And as the consciousness of this transcendent God continued to dawn upon them, they came to realize that he's not just a tribal God. He's the God of everyone. He's the God uh, of everyone. The other thing that was a shocker for the Middle East was the doctrine that God created ex nihilo from nothing, that matter is not divine, and that God's entry into history through this revelation starts in train a process of salvation. This was also revolutionary in the ancient world. This, this polytheistic world was considered eternal. Matter was eternal. The world was eternal. The gods were part of the world. They were just up a little higher in it than the rest of us. And everything would rise and fall and repeat itself. And since time was endless and the world was eternal, Everything was looped, circular, futile. Nothing had a beginning, a middle, and end because it, it had always existed. A sense of futility hung over the world in this conception of, of the world as being divine and eternal. And all of a sudden the Jews say, no, the world's not eternal. God is transcendent. He created it from nothing for a purpose in which he wants us to come to know him and obey him and serve him. And though we have disobeyed him, as is told in Genesis, he has promised to send a redeemer. Thus, history begins. And the sense in which we understand history comes from that salvation history that began with the Jews. And so we read as the Old Testament develops intimations of who this Redeemer will be. What will he be like? What will he do? 
Is he Isaiah's suffering servant? What could that mean? He's, he's, he's a king from the line of David, so we must watch the descendants of the house of David. Uh, he will restore Israel. Will he be the one who fulfills the promise to Abraham that this will be a light to all people, that this will be a good and a benefit to everyone, not just the Jewish tribe? And so it goes. The transcendence of God, creation ex nihilo, salvation history with the beginning of Revelation. Moses wonders, who is this speaking to him? Who is it who has given him the commandments? Who shall I tell them? Who shall I tell them? When I go back and talk to the Israelites, who am I supposed to tell them to send me? And God answers, tell them I am who am sent you. I am who am. As we have come to understand that in theological and metaphysical terms, we know we're speaking of that being whose existence, whose essence is existence, whose essence is existent, who exists necessarily, just as none of us, none of us exists necessarily, but we're made by I am who am, who does exist necessarily. So I am who am is who he said to tell Moses, uh, spoke to him. Now, when Christ arrives and he's recognized by John the Baptist as the Lamb, that strikes one chord of the prophecies as to who was coming. But when Jesus himself is confronted with Abraham and asked, who do you think you are? Do you think you're greater than the prophets? Do you think you're greater than Abraham? What does our Lord say? Before Abraham was, I am who am. And what was the reaction to that? rending of garments, cries of blasphemy, because the statement of our Lord was unequivocal, unequivocable, and could not be understood in any way other than what it was meant to be precisely this man adopting the language of Yahweh and saying, I am who am. I'm always very surprised, amazed, struck by non-Christian friends who say There's, there are any number of ways to read the New Testament. Uh, this, you know, he, he wasn't really claiming to be divine. And the last person I went through this with was a Russian uh, 
whose father had been uh, in the Soviet military, and of course, obviously there was no religion in his house. And I said, well, actually, Victor, I think you need to know. That's not what he meant there. And here's a book that discusses it. He was baptized in the Orthodox Church this last year because that was what he looked at. Oh, oh wait a minute. He really did claim to be God, to be the Son of God, to be the incarnate God. Now, this, of course, was a, a huge offense to most of the Jews, not to the apostles who followed him uh, and the other Jews who followed him, but it was a scandal to the other Jews. And they're still scandalized today. And, of course, the great difference between us and our Jewish friends, as much as we love them, is that they're, we're, they're still waiting for the Messiah, and we know he's already here. But never condescend to the Jews. Remember how St. John Paul the Great addressed them? Our elders in the faith. How could anyone account for the history of the Jews other than through providence? It is so remarkable and extraordinary. I also have to tell you, I learned a lot from a great man who was a German political philosopher who escaped the Nazis, taught at Notre Dame for many, many years, Gerhard Niemeyer. I never forgot when he said to me, before you can be a good Christian, you have to be a good Jew. He became an Episcopalian priest, and then he converted to Catholicism. And he wanted to be a Catholic priest, but he was already in his 80s, and they said, sorry, Gerhard, we can't... Uh, he was a great, great man. I've never forgotten that line. Um, and of course, we believe that Christ fulfills the promises uh, made in the Old Testament. And it is only he who could have offered a sacrifice to the Father of sufficient worth to redeem us. What had we to offer, having offended an infinite, transcendent God? What, but what did man have of worth to restore that catastrophically broken relationship? Nothing. That's the great part of salvation history. I will send someone to do it for you, and so God sends his own son. This, this is not only offen offensive to Jews, it's even more offensive to Muslims for several reasons. Number one, in the Quran, I haven't gone over a lot of stuff that I usually explicate about the Quran because I've speak spoken at the ICC before about this. I don't know how many of you have ever heard me speak before. but And I know you've remembered everything I've said, so I, I try not to repeat myself. But uh, the, the, there is no original sin in the Quran. Nor is, God nor is man made in the image of God. So there's no promise of a redeemer in the Quran. There's the first sin in the Quran, and then the second and the third, but 
But Allah, being all compassionate and merciful, either forgives the sin, as he did Adam and Eve, uh, or he doesn't, and he destroys them. But it's whatever he wants to do. Uh, the reason there's no salvation history in, in Islam is because there's no original sin. Because there's nothing to redeem. So there's no redeemer. So how is Jesus, who's called Isa in, in the Quran, thought of? He's just another prophet. Uh, virgin birth? No problem. The Quran teaches that. Uh, ascending to heaven? No problem. Jesus does that. But was he the son of God? Absolutely not. Uh, almost every appearance of Jesus in the Quran is his saying to Allah, I never said that. Oh no, I never said I was your son. I would never do a thing like that. The first historical record of Islam is inscribed in the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. That's the first written evidence we have of Islam. And what does it, the inscription say? I have no associates. I have no son. It's almost an obsession with Islam to deny the Trinity. And it's repeated and repeated and repeated. And it's repeated, I mean, I don't think Cardinal McCarrick, with all the goodwill that he was trying to extend to his dear Muslim confreres, understood the import of their language. Almost everything they said, say is a denial of the Trinity. Are you aware of the common word document by the 138 uh, Muslim scholars, imams, and so forth that were, it was in a response to the Regensburg lecture by Benedict XVI? A common word. Let us find a common word. This is a, a, a statement taken from the Quran, which when you complete it is, this, we find a common word in which we all agree God has no associates. So that's the common word they're looking for, of course, is the denial of, uh, of the Trinity. And therefore, the denial of the divinity of Christ. This means also, of course, that Christ was not crucified. In Islam, in the Quran, God would never treat one of his prophets that way. After all, he's all-powerful. Why would he do that? So that was a shadow, or it was another man who was crucified. It wasn't Christ. And Christ is, he did ascend to paradise. And in Muslim eschatology, he is coming back at the end of time. Guess what for? To break all the crosses and kill all the pigs. So if you, if you know in the list of uh, sources I, I gave to Melanie, I have on there an imaginary dialogue between Christ and a Muslim that I wrote two years ago. It had been gestating for some time. So in this imaginary dialogue, I have this Muslim appearing before the throne of Christ and saying, 
the Muslim says, I, I didn't expect to see you here. I thought you were coming back at the end of time to break all the crosses. And Christ answers him, no, I'm not coming back at the end of time to break all the crosses. I was broken on the cross, by which merit you are able to appear before me today. And the dialogue continues. It's not very long, and since you have the link to it, you can see in a fairly short period of time, I try to, in this dialogue, show the profoundly different attitudes toward who God is and whether he can be known. Um, let me go in for a few. How do we regard each other in these religions of Abraham? Well, I just spoke of how the Jews regard us, that we have followed a false messiah. By the way, one thing Christ does is that he breaks the uh, human genealogy of the Old Testament. You may note, because he was supposed to be from the house of David, there's a genealogy given of Christ at the beginning of, was it Matthew? I forget which of the Gospels. Son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. And throughout the Old Testament, you see who's the son of... So, so the legitimacy of the line and the promise of the prophet coming from that, everything has to be genealogically correct. And then what does Christ do? He's told, hey, your brothers and your mother are waiting outside. Who's my mother? Who's my brother? I have no brothers except he who does the will of God. This is part of the transformation of what is in the Old Testament in the New Covenant that Christ establishes that there is now superseding the physical lineage, a spiritual lineage of uh, each individual to God. We know how we regard the Jews, that we embrace, of course, their revelation and uh, think they missed the Messiah. How do the Muslims regard the Jews and us? This is uh, certainly in Surah 5. It's mentioned in many places in the Quran. The story of the covenant is repeat repeated in the Quran. The acknowledgment that Allah gave the land to the Jews, that he had a covenant with them. The Jews are praised in places for keeping God's word, and, but then what did the Jews go and do? It says in Surah 5, Allah says, they changed my word. Cursed be the Jews forever. They changed my word. In other words, they changed my revelation. That's what the Jews are accused of doing as a consequence of which it is understood they lose their right to the Holy Land. And uh, they are cursed throughout the, you know, the, 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 repeatedly in the Quran. Sons of monkeys and apes and elsewhere. By the way, when you read stuff in the press today concerning this, and you think it's an aberration, let me uh, 
assure you that it is not. I just want to give you a little sample of this. Here is from a, an Al-Azhar mosque sermon in Egypt. God has inflicted the Muslim nation with the people whom God has become angry at, whom he cursed. So he made monkeys and pigs out of them. They killed prophets and messengers and sowed corruption on earth. They are the most evil on earth. Uh, those are, those, by the way, all, that's studded with direct references to the Quran. All of that is. We have something a little rough from Yosef Karadawi, the most popular Sunni preacher in the world today, the more or less spiritual head of the Muslim Brotherhood. Not an official position, but millions of people came out to Tahrir Square in Cairo when he returned. Here's what he said on Al Jazeera. Quote, throughout history, Allah has imposed upon the Jewish people who would punish them for their corruption. The last punishment was carried out by Hitler. By means of all the things he did to them, even though they exaggerated the issue, he managed to put them in their place. This was divine punishment for them. Allah willing, Allah willing, the next time will be at the hands of the believers. Unquote. Um, Mohammed Morsi, as you know, was president of Egypt there for a year, a Muslim Brotherhood figure. I can remember when uh, two senators went over to visit him, McCain and... Um, Another, uh, I'm trying to remember who the other one was. Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham. McCain and Graham are over there to see President Morsi. And Memory, the organization I'm on the board of, the Middle East Research Institute, reissued two videos of Morsi's statements when he was on the hustings running for office. I'll read you one of them. We must never forget, brothers, to nurse our children and our grandchildren on hatred for them, for Zionists, for Jews. Egyptian children must feed on hatred. Hatred must continue. The hatred must go on for God and as a form of worshiping him. Unquote. Hatred of the Jews is love of God. Now, Thanks to airing these videos, it created an incident in Cairo because Graham and McCain had to, it was in the New York Times, everyone said, look what, the hell, look what Morsi said. And so McCain and Graham had to raise the subject with Morsi and saying, well, you know, it's just, this is, and, and Morsi said, well, oh, well, that was taken out of context. <laughs> And I kept thinking, now, would that be the context of the Quran? No, it's, that's the hatred of the Jews. Could that be out of the, the Hadith? No, no, the Jews even get it worse in the Hadith. Could it be out of the program of the Muslim Brotherhood? Oh, no. 
It's completely consistent with that. So what context was he speaking of? So this is a really, um, let's say, a foundational part of, of Islam for the Jews because they changed God's word, cursed be the Jews forever. Also that surah says, the Jews say my hand is tied. Cursed be the Jews, let their hands be tied. What did they mean by that? They think it meant that the Jews say God will be faithful to his covenant. That God will be consistent with his with who he is and with his promises. But the Muslim view of God is quite different. At least the majority Sunni view in the Asherite theological school is God is not bound by anything, even his own word. He can do anything at any time. And it is he, by the way, who does everything anyway. Those of you who have guilty consciences, don't worry about it. Allah did it. Um, so what then, uh, what account does the Quran make of the Christians? Allah says, so the Jews changed my words, so I gave it again to the Christians. Meaning Allah's original revelation. What he, what he gave to Abraham, what he gave to Moses. The Jews changed it, so here it is. The, you have the original, the Christians. And then what did the Christians do? They came up with this cockamamie idea, I have a son. I have no son. So, says Allah to Muhammad, I'm going to do it one more time. Here is my revelation again. And this is the last time. So you, Muhammad, are the seal of the prophets, meaning there will be no further prophecy or revelation after you. Uh, this is it. Therefore, the Muslims are a supersessionist religion in the sense that it supersedes, obviously, the Jewish religion because they changed the words and it supersedes the Christian religion because we came up with these blasphemous ideas that God had a son and the blasphemous idea of the Trinity, which, by the way, in the Quran is reported as consisting of the Father, Son, and Mary. Um, So is it the same uh, God of Abraham? Show of hands now. Let's see how we've been doing over the last hour. Is it the same God? OK, one person left. That's not bad. The It's, the God is the same, it's the people who messed up. Actually, that's another interesting thing about the Jews that I forgot to mention. It seemed to be the case in the ancient world that every other tribe that was defeated understood their defeat as the defeat of their God or their gods. 
which had been defeated by the gods of the conquering tribe or city. And therefore, since they were all usually slaughtered or enslaved, they didn't have much to say about it, but why not go with the god who wins, right? Join, join the winning team. Except for the Jews. This is the other extraordinary thing about the Jews. They are defeated repeatedly. They go into captivity in Babylon. They go into slavery in Egypt. And they don't consider that a defeat of their god. They account for that exactly in the way you said we messed up. It is we who are not faithful to our god, not our god who is not faithful to us. That's another extraordinary legacy of the Jewish religion that we have inherited, because of course we are a Jewish religion, right? You know that. Uh, now, I would strongly recommend that anyone who would like to see a fuller treatment of the teachings of Islam and Christianity uh, to try this Prospects and Perils of Muslim-Catholic Dialogue, I think you will see uh, what needs to be understood when such conversations are undertaken, what in fact has happened in this country when the church has undertaken them, and what perils that exposes us to. Let me end here by referring to something Benedict XVI said the year before he assumed his papacy. And this is referring to Islam. Without peace between reason and faith, there cannot be peace at the world level, because without peace between reason and religion, the very sources of morals and the rule of law dry out. Unquote. Islam needs peace within itself in exactly the way in which the Pope spoke, between reason and faith. The lack of that peace is at the source of the strife in the Muslim world today. Islam is at war with itself. And to pretend otherwise is a disservice to Muslims and Christians alike. I wasn't able to develop as I would like to have that fundamental problem within Islam about the relationship between uh, faith and reason and the lack of a synthesis of the two. The Muhammad al-Ghazali is the Muslim, the most influential Muslim next only to Muhammad. He was an 11th century philosopher and theologian who wrote a book called The Incoherence of the Philosophers in which he said Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, these were all unbelievers in their haram. And so are Al-Farabi and Avicenna, the, the Muslim philosophers who fell under their influence. They're haram also. They're forbidden. They're unbelievers. Philosophy, reason, can attain no certainty about anything. 
Therefore, it's just another religion and it's a false one. All you have is God's revelation in the Quran and it is, that is the only thing that can guide you to what is right or wrong. So he says, and this is a quote, once you arrive at the truth of the prophet, the mind must cease to act. He successfully extirpated philosophy and the role and integrity of reason within Islam. That's the story I tell in my book, The Closing of the Muslim Mind. It's one of the greatest dramas in human history. I'm surprised about how few people know about it. And if you think this is just Bob Riley sounding off, I will close by just giving you a couple samples from the Muslims who understand the dilemma in which they are from the closing of the Muslim mind. This is from uh, this summer on a French-Algerian intellectual on uh, Sky News Arabia. Quote, we Muslims suffer from many problems and first and foremost from ideological decline. We have slipped into darkness. I am not saying this as a sort of self-flagellation, but because this is the bitter truth that we must admit. We have sanctified ignorance. We suffer from sanctified ignorance. We do not know and we are not aware that we do not know. Some Islamic governments have even institutionalized ignorance. In universities, school, and educational institutions, people deliberate, deliberate commentaries of commentaries while refusing to make use of any of the accomplishments of the human mind, especially in the humanities, like linguistics, history, psychology, philosophy, and the exegesis of any discourse, even religious discourse. Here is one even, since it comes from Saudi Arabia, even more telling. Ibrahim al-Bulahi in Saudi Arabia, hatred of reason Abandon, what you will see on some Saudi websites, abandon reason and submit to the text. Hatred of reason has only become more prevalent and the antipathy has accumulated over generations on account of the fact that rational orientations were never accepted and their associated activities were hated. Despite the disappearance of the rational movement, opponents of rationality nevertheless continue to issue warnings against reason and demonize those who display rationalist tendencies. The greatest catastrophe to befall Islam and the Muslims is the catastrophe that has conscripted the nation against reason from our earliest history. The consummate refusal of rationality and the war against enlightenment has locked all doors and windows against any attempts at illumination. Thank you.
Um, you said that uh, the Jews changed the word or something, and that's why the Muslims don't like them. I think you said, how did they change it? Well, uh, because it's not the Quran. So that's in the fifth surah, that's what Allah is saying. Uh, they, they, they changed my word because here's my word as it originally was given. So all those changes the Jews made. Do you see what I mean? And then when a Christian, by the way, and the Christians did this when they confronted the Muslims in the 7th, 8th century as the Muslims conquered all of the, these great Christians' areas in the Middle East, North Africa. They said, well, all the prophets were foretold. Where was Muhammad foretold? And they said, oh, those are the things you changed. <laughs> Sir, a Muslim might argue that Christ has no father just as Muhammad had no father. Abraham rejected him. The solution to the Christian-Muslim conflict is to provide waters from the well as in baptism. Would you comment? I pray for the conversion of Muslims every day. Actually, it was related to the statement that the Muslims believe Jesus was a Muslim and Abraham was a Muslim, etc., etc. It basically comes from the translation of Islam in Arabic. Islam is the uh, submission to the will of God. And since all of these people have submitted to the will of God, they are Muslims. Uh, that's, I believe, the origin of the, that belief. What, what belief? That, that, that Christ and Abraham and Moses and Adam were Muslims because they submitted to the will of God. Uh, well, the, the teaching actually is that you are, before you submit to anything, you're born a Muslim. That's why in Is Islamic teaching, you cannot convert to Islam. You can only revert to Islam. So you can certainly be a disobedient uh, Muslim, or there you can be a mushrikun, an unbeliever, or an apostate, or a person of the book, uh, or a polytheist, but you were, you were born Muslims, it's the Deen al-Fitra, the religion natural to man. So we say uh, things that are according to nature that, for instance, all people are created equal. We think that there are, we are endowed by God with certain inalienable rights according to our nature, that they, they are inbuilt. Uh, Islam doesn't believe any of that. They don't believe we, can, we have rights that we can come to know. All we have is Islam. All we have is the Quran and the Hadith and that revelation. That is the sole source of legitimate knowledge in our lives. There's no such thing as the law of nature. Everything is collapsed into that revelation, which is why uh, the, 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 the primary point of study in Islam is jurisprudence. They also got this, they're more a Jewish religion, by the way. They're more a deformation of, of Judaism than they are of Christianity because they're a highly legal religion uh, with the dietary uh, restrictions 
and every con contemplated human action falls within one of five categories from haram to halal, everything you do, the way you go to the bathroom is prescribed in, within Islam. Uh, and that's all a result of thinking through the hadith in the Quran on, on what you need to do and how you need to behave. Uh, and you can't think outside of that source of revelation to anything that is natural to you as a human being because nature doesn't exist. Was that sufficiently confusing? I hope so. Sir, it sounds like you're saying that though each of the three religions purports to worship the same God, a God that has such radically different revelations really is not the same God. Am I correct in understanding that? Thank you for bringing that up. Someone came up to me and said, you quizzed us, but you never answered the question <laughs> whether this is the same God of Abraham. And I would certainly say in terms of Christianity and its regard to Jewsism, Yahweh is our God. In respect to Allah, for both Jews and Christians, the answer is no. And the reason is because there is a radically different conception of who God is. And someone else reminded me, of course, as St. John tells us, God is love. That's incomprehensible to a Muslim because love only indicates a lack in something. So God, you know, in other words, to be self-sufficient, you can't love someone because that uh, denotes a need in you, you see. And therefore, according to their theology, God cannot love. He can favor you, but he can't love you. You may have the obligation to love him, but he doesn't love you. Now, the, this is the kind of radical monotheism that exists in Islam. This is much less of a, a problem in Christianity, not only because we're told God is love, but because of the Trinity. In Islam, God is alone, transcendent, above, immeasurable, incomprehensible, eternally alone. In Christianity, God is a relationship within himself that is so strong that the love between the Father and the Son is the Holy Spirit. This also removes, it doesn't remove a mystery, it simply makes it richer for us. For a Muslim, and even for a Jew, the creation ex nihilo is a problem. How can God, alone in eternity, all of a sudden find himself in relationship to something? That's a philosophical and theological problem. He's alone forever, he's self-sufficient, he needs nothing, and all of a sudden there's something else. How can the, he, what, what can his relationship be to this something else? In Christianity, not a problem because God already is a relationship. So for him then to be in relationship with what he creates ex nihilo is less of a problem. And because he is love himself, uh, that he is, He's not just Christ, he's agape, this love that overflows itself uh, into us through his son, who's right next door. Isn't that unbelievable? I don't know why they don't convert. This is such good news. <laughs> uh, Mr. Riley, I uh, wanted to find out, what is the significance or the meaning behind 
God's changing Abram's name to Abraham in terms of uh, if you get a, his ethnicity into it. But what's the significance there? That is going to be a question for Tuesday. So I'm not allowing that. Sorry, well, I, I do have a, a three-word answer. Okay, go ahead. I don't know. <laughs> My question is, Din al-Fitra, the doctrine which says everybody has created a Muslim, uh, and Muhammad is a perfect sunnah, perfect example. Christian, okay, on another hand, Christians believe everybody is born in sin. Is it fair to say we almost are saying the same thing, which is if Muhammad is the highest example in Islam, and Muhammad in the standard of Christianity is very low, in a sense, we almost are saying, saying the same thing. We believe we are born in sin. Islam says uh, the way you're created is a Muslim or perfect example as a Muslim is Muhammad. When Christians see Muhammad, his standard is very low to Christianity. So could you say we almost are saying the same thing? Does that make sense? No. <laughs> I'm sorry, Johannes. I'm not, I don't get that. I mean, there yeah, I know Dean Al-Fitra, but there's, there's no original sin in Islam, and that is the, therefore it's, it's not a problem to be solved. There's no redeemer to reestablish a relationship because the relationship didn't exist in the first place. Right. It's a perfect sunnah. Right, yes. Yeah, right. Muhammad was, according to Muslims, the perfect human being. But in Christian standard, the life of Muhammad was very low, wasn't it? We don't consider he was the perfect human being. That's absolutely correct. Thank you very much for a wonderful presentation again. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.